What is going on, sports fans, and welcome into Season 4, Episode 11 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast presented by Anchor. And we've got a lot to get to in this week's show. We're going to start off with the red-hot first place Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians are 17-4 and in their last 21 games. They've taken sole possession of first place in the AL Central. We're going to talk about that and tell, tell you how they've gotten to this point and if I think it can continue into an exciting playoff push for the youngest team in baseball, the Cleveland Guardians. We also talk a little bit about the AL MVP race. There's a lot of names going for the AL MVP this year. I'm going to talk about who are the favorites and who I think is the AL MVP at this point in the MLB season. We also got some NFL football to talk about. An update in the Deshaun Watson saga. Deshaun Watson and his lawyer, Dusty Harden, have now settled 20 out of 24 cases with Tony Busby and the accusers. So that means there are only four outstanding cases against Deshaun Watson. 20 of them have been settled. I'll talk about that news and what it means for potential suspensions for the Browns' signal caller. We also got the NBA Finals have come and went. The Golden State Warriors win their fourth title since 2015 as they beat the Boston Celtics in six games, what it means for Steph Curry, what it means for Golden State and their legacy as a dynasty. A little bit of an NBA draft preview as well. The NBA draft takes place tonight at 8 o'clock. I'll talk about who I think is going to be the number one pick, who is going to be the best player out of this draft class, and who the Cleveland Cavaliers should target at pick 14. And we also got the Stanley Cup Finals to get to. The Avalanche are up 3-1. Do I think they close it out in five, or can Tampa Bay extend the series? So we've got a lot to get to, but first, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor, and Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast, creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast right from your phone or computer. If you want to make your own podcast, here's what you need to do. You need to download the free Anchor app or go online to anchor.fm to get started today. Today is Thursday, June 23rd. Let's go. Episode 11 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. It's Thursday, June 23rd, about about 12.45 p.m. when we're recording this. And the Cleveland Guardians are in sole possession of first place in the AL Central. The Guardians have elevated themselves to first place. And it's been a really remarkable 21-game stretch ever since the month of June started for this Cleveland Guardians team. Um, they are just, they've just been remarkable. They've been getting a lot of performances that aren't expected, a lot of comebacks, and they do play today at 1.10 p.m. with Zach Plezak on the hill. We will have some live updates and reactions to that game as well. But how the Guardians 
um, gone from a young, young, the youngest team in baseball, which they still are. They have the, a younger team average than the the average age. The younger, let me start that over. <laughs> they have a younger average age as a team than any other Triple A team. So not only are they yo- the youngest team in the MLB, but technically they're the youngest team in Triple A by team average. So. They went from being the youngest team in baseball, trying to figure out how to win, kind of in a rebuilding phase, and they threaded the needle, led by Terry Francona, led by, obviously, Jose Ramirez, who's having an MVP-type season. They've gotten some great contributions from some rookies, like Steven Kwan, like an Oscar Gonzalez. They have one of the best bullpens in the American League, led by the best closer in baseball, Emmanuel Classe, led by a lot of solid back-end relievers who are kind of really excelling in the role that they're being put in, like an Eli Morgan, like a Sam Hentages. This team has had a lot, a lot of success over the last 21 games. They're 17-4. and four. It's the best record in the MLB. Uh, their tri- this road trip they're on, they're 7-1 and one on the tour of the United States. <laughs> It trip that began in the Rocky Mountains, with, where they swept the Rockies, continued to Hollywood, where they took remarkably two out of three against the Dodgers, including on Sunday, they beat the Dodgers with Jose Ramirez out of the lineup, and now they're at Minneapolis, Minnesota, taking on the Twins, who have been in first place all year, and they have won two thrilling games. On Tuesday night, they came back, they were down... They were down 6-4 to four in the eighth inning, and Franmil Reyes hit a game-tying two-run home run in the eighth inning. It went to extras, and the Guardians hang on to win that game 7-6 to six on an Andres Jimenez RBI single. And last night, it was even more remarkable, as they were tied for first place last night. Last night, first place on the line. They end up trailing 2-0, 4-1. And then 10 to 7 going into the ninth inning. And they come back with a four spot in the ninth. Josh Naylor with an RBI double. Oscar Gonzalez with a two RBI single. Owen Miller with the go ahead sack fly. And the Guardians take an 11 to 10 lead in the bottom of the ninth. Class A shuts the door. And the Guardians hold on to take sole possession of first place in the AL Central. And one way they're doing this is because they are great. Um, in the late innings, uh, Tom Hamilton on the radio broadcast of yesterday's game said, they're like when your college kids come home from the, for the summer. They, they only want to party past 10 p.m. And he said that's what the Guardians are doing. And he's right. The Guardians love partying late in the ballgame, past the seventh inning. The Guardians this season are outscoring opponents 35-13 to 13 in the ninth inning, and they're outscoring opponents 10-4 ten, ten in extra innings. So the Guardians... Um, are really becoming the the Guardiac kids, if you will. Uh, they've mounted 15 come-from-behind victories. In high-leverage situations, they own a 795 OPS as a team, which is 22% better than the league average. This team has um, expedited the franchise's contention timeline, and they've revamped the conversations about the trade deadline. A big part of it's been the bullpen, like I mentioned. Emmanuel Classe, Brian Shaw, those are the only two veterans in this bullpen. But then you have some younger guys like Eli Morgan, like Sam Hentages, like an Anthony Ghost, who are young players 
excelling in the role that they have been put in. And the Guardians now the second best bullpen ERA in the majors at 2.86, only behind the Astros. It, uh, their ERA right now, the bullpen ERA, would be the third lowest ERA behind by Cleveland relievers in the last 45 years. Behind the 2017 bullpen, which we all know featured Cody Allen, Andrew Miller, which won 102 games, and behind the 2005 group, which was a 93-win team featuring the likes of Bob Wickman and Rafael Benincourt. So this team, they're getting great performances out of the bullpen. That's a one big reason why they have kind of excelled themselves and propelled themselves into first place. So I really like the bullpen. Another one that I think, another reason that I think this team has kind of excelled, uh, propelled themselves into first place is Oscar Gonzalez. And kind of what this, what the hitting coach Chris Velakia is doing to Oscar Gonzalez and helping him get better at bats. Gonzalez delivered twice in the late innings last night. He launched a go-ahead two-run homer to late uh, to left field in the seventh inning off Twins reliever Jarrell Cotton. And in the ninth, like I said, he had a two-RBI single off Griffin Jacks. But Gonzalez is having some great hitting for power. He's he's hit for power, and he's hit for contact, and he's getting a lot of hits in, at the major league level. In the majors, he slugged two home runs in 24 games, both in his last 13 plate appearances. He's excelling at smacking sharp grounders and line drives through the infield. He has bat-to-ball skills, which are very, very good. I think as long as he keeps hitting, he is going to be – he absolutely has a place in this ball club. Another reason why is Shane Bieber – is um throwing his slider at a very effective late effective rate and he's learning how to win and make winning pitches without having velocity on his fastball. His slider has been thrown 41% of the time this season. Bieber's velocity drop in velocity has been well documented. But let's take a look at his annual output aside from the pandemic shortened 2020 season. We're going to look at 2019, 2021, and 2022. 2019, he had a 3.28 ERA. 2021, he had a 3.17 ERA. And 2022, he had a 3.00 ERA. His stats in 2022, including his FIP, his walk rate, his strikeout rate, and his opponent OPS, are a lot better. His other worldies, 2020 statistics, obviously were very good. But at this point... His 2022 numbers are as strong as any other season in his big league career besides 2020. Another big thing I think that the Guardians will need to continue to do if they want to continue to be in first place. We saw it work yesterday and the night before. I think they need to put Stephen Kwan at the top of the lineup, and I think they need Miles Straw at the bottom of the lineup. Miles Straw's sub-300 on base percentage is not cutting it from the leadoff spot, but Stephen Kwan deserves to be up hitting at the top of the lineup leading off for this Guardians team. Quan has rebounded after a dreadful May. Uh, his stat, his slash line in June is actually better than his slash line is in April. Uh, overall, Quan's on-base percentage stands at 365, 
and he leads the league in strikeout rate, which means he's striking out less than anybody in Major League Baseball. So this Guardians team, they've gotten pretty good starting pitching. They've gotten great contributions from the bullpen. The lineup, Jose Ramirez is contributing. The young guys like Oscar Gonzalez, Steven Kwan, Andre Jimenez are contributing as well. And this Guardians team, led by Terry Francona, they're trying to thread the impossible needle of rebuilding and playing rookies, playing young guys in high leverage situations, and still contending. And so far, this Guardians team has done it. They're 17-4 and in the month of June in their last 21 games, best stretch in baseball. They're in sole possession of first place in the AL Central, and they play today in about 20 minutes. At 1.10 p.m. with Zach Plezak on the hill in Minnesota. We will have live updates for that game as well. And going from the Guardians to just the American League MVP race. This American League MVP race has been one of the most compelling storylines to follow in Major League Baseball this season. Obviously, some of the names have been in this conversation before. Aaron Judge. Jose Ramirez, Shohei Otani, but it is really a five-headed race right now. Let's start with Darren Judge, who is the presumptive favorite by everybody in the media. Judge is having an unreal career year for the Yankees, and he's going to make the Yankees pay him over $300 million when he signs that contract extension. Judge is is hitting 302 with 27 home runs and 57 RBIs. His OPS is 1.042. He is on pace to hit 63 home runs this season. So he is contender number one. Contender number two is Jordan Alvarez. Gets a little bit knocked because he's a primarily, primarily he plays DH, but he's having an unreal year at the plate for the Houston Astros. He is hitting 315. 21 home runs, 51 RBIs, leading the league in OPS at 1.064. He's contender number two. Contender number three is Jose Ramirez. We've talked about him at length on this show. I think he, I am a Guardians fan. I think he's the most valuable player in the sense that he is the most valuable to his team out of any of these players. Ramirez this season is sitting 306 with 16 home runs, 302 with 16 home runs. 62 RBIs, 1.023 OPS, leading the American League in RBIs. So he is the third contender for this award. The fourth contender for this award is Rafael Devers on the Boston Red Sox. He's having a great year for the Boston Red Sox. He's hitting 328 with 16 home runs, 43 RBIs, leading the American League in hits and doubles. And then you got the fifth contender who... A lot of people aren't talking about as a potential MVP candidate this season, but who won the MVP last year and just because of what he can do is going to be an MVP candidate year in and year out. And that, of course, is Shohei Otani. Let's let's talk about Shohei Otani's last two games, shall we? On Tuesday night against the Royals, Shohei Otani went three for four with two home runs and eight RBIs. Last night, Shohei Otani pitched eight innings of shutout ball with 13 strikeouts, a career high. So Shohei Otani's stats this year, hitting will go first. Hitting, he is hitting 260, 15 home runs, and 45 RBIs, which is pretty good, pretty good. 
Those numbers alone aren't MVP numbers. But when you add in his pitching, 6-4, and a 2.90 ERA, 68 innings pitch, 90 strikeouts, that is going to put him firmly in the MVP conversation. So out of these players, Aaron Judge, Jordan Alvarez, Shohei Otani, Jose Ramirez, and Rafael Devers, who do I think is the American League MVP? You know what? It, it's it's very tough. I, I think Aaron Judge might be having the best season out of these five players. When you talk about who is the best player out of these players, I think it's Shohei Otani. Because just of what he can do, pitching and hitting at the same time and doing it in the otherworldly level is insane. But when I'm talking about most valuable player, who is the most valuable player to their team? To the, their team's success. If you took this player off the team, they would be significantly worse. It's Jose Ramirez. Jose Ramirez is the heart and soul of the Guardians team. 62 runs batted in. He plays the game so hard with a lot of heart. He's an outstanding base runner. Can steal bases. He's a good fielder. He gets a lot of clutch hits. He is the veteran leader on this young Guardians team, which is the youngest team in baseball. Without Jose Ramirez, I don't think he is. The Guardians are in first place right now. I would probably rank the MVP candidates Jose 1, Aaron Judge 2, Alvarez 3, Devers 4, Otani 5. And I just think all five of these players are having outstanding seasons. But I would give it to Ramirez right now because he's the most valuable to his team's success. Elsewhere in the MLB, taking a look at the standings, we mentioned the Cleveland Guardians hold that one-game lead on the Minnesota Twins. The Guardians are 36-28 and 28 in on the season, 8-2 and two in their last 10 games, and they lead the Twins by one game. Taking a look at the American League East, the Yankees are at, playing at an otherworldly pace right now. They're 51-18 on the year through 67 games. I think it was the... The, um no here it was yeah through 67 games the Yankees were 50 and, and 17 they were the fastest team to 50 wins since the 2001 Mariners which we all know won I believe 110 games so that is what that is where we are at right now with these Yankees team they're put that through 60 games almost through 60 games they are 51 and 18 so that is Something to keep an eye on as well. Um, the Yankees are off to a great start. They're 51 and 18. In that division, the American League East, you got the Blue Jays in second at 39 and 30, the Red Sox in third at 39 and 31, and then the, the Tampa Bay Rays in fourth at 37 and 32. In the Central, it's really three teams are in contention. The Guardians are in first, Twins in second, White Sox in third. With the Twins a game behind the Guardians and the White Sox four and a half behind the Guardians. In the AL West, it's the Astros show once again. They're 43-25 and 25 on the year. In the National League, the Dodgers and Padres are tied atop the NL West. That's a compelling race to keep an eye on as well. You take a look at the very tight NL Central race as well. Between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Milwaukee Brewers, as the Brewers are a game behind the Cardinals. And then in the NL East, you got the Mets and the Braves, who are four and a half games separated. The Mets have a 45-26 record. 
the Braves are four and a half games behind the Mets as well. But that's going on around the MLB. A lot of good storylines to keep an eye on. And the Guardians are about to throw out the, the first pitch in that matchup. We'll be in about 10 minutes. We'll have some live reactions of that game and some updates in part two of the episode. From Major League Baseball to NFL football, and we got to talk about the Cleveland Browns and Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson, on, uh, in his introductory press conference from March 21st for the Cleveland Browns, said, quote, whether he'd attempt to settle the uh, civil lawsuits filed against him that accused him of inappropriate sexual misconduct. Watson said, quote, that's not my intent. My intent is to continue to clear my name as much as possible, and that's what I'm focused on. On Tuesday, Deshaun Watson and his legal team reversed course. Tony Busby, the attorney of the accusers, told ESPN in a statement that 20 of the 24 cases against Watson had been settled. The other four have not been settled and remain on track to go to trial next year. With 20 cases against Watson now settled, uh, what's next for the Browns in the NFL? Uh, the NFL has consist- consistently declined to give a timeline for the completion of its investigation. Uh, through conversations with various sources close to the situation, uh, it indicates there's at least a chance it's nearing its conclusion. I saw a report today that said that uh, the Browns are expecting a Watson suspension announcement as early as this week, but by next week at the latest. Um, I think... With these settlements, in my opinion, settling 20 out of these 24 cases came from the Browns or the NFL. I think the NFL told Watson, look, dude, if you settle these cases, we won't suspend you for the whole season. We'll give you between four and ten games. You'll be able to play some of this season. You won't lose out on your salary this year. The settlements, I think, give the NFL the option to make it a lesser suspension. There were some reports last week before these settlements happened saying that Watson was going to get a year, Watson was going to get two years. Some really crazy, unsubstantiated, un, uh, supported reports coming out that Watson was going to be suspended a year. Nobody really knows. But I think the Browns will know before training camp begins. But I think the settlements, settling 20 out of 24 of these cases – Allows Watson to take a little bit of a sigh of relief. Allows the Browns to take a sigh of relief. I think it's the first step towards the end of this whole situation for Watson, the Browns, and the accusers. Watson's going to be suspended. We know this. I think he'll be suspended four to ten games. I think... Eight is probably the number the NFL is going to go with. Um, I think a lot of people are saying he's going to be suspended a year, but like I said, nobody truly knows. But I think eight is the number. But Watson settles 20 out of 24 cases. Um, People are saying it doesn't prove that he's innocent. It doesn't prove that he's guilty. That's very true. But what it does prove is, A, some of these women didn't really want this to go to trial and they just wanted, you know, they, they wanted to get some money and kudos to them. The att- 
Tony Busby got some money. These accusers got some money. And hopefully that money helps with the trauma that they have allegedly experienced in this situation. Uh, Number two is that Watson is ready for this to move behind him, and so are the Browns, and I think so is the NFL. That's why I think his suspension announcement is coming soon. Number three, I think it means Deshaun Watson will definitely play this year. I think settling means Watson will definitely play this year. I think that the NFL is going to suspend Watson for eight to ten games. Next week, Watson will appeal, and it will get with uh, reduced to four to six games. I think Watson will be on the field this year for the Browns. And I think this situation will not be totally behind him by the start of the regular season or by his first game. But when he returns to the field and starts throwing touchdowns, that's the best way Watson can clear his name, in my opinion. Settling these cases is the right thing to do for Deshaun Watson. And that's what I think of this whole situation. So Watson settles with 20 out of 24 accusers, and that means there are only four outstanding cases against the Cleveland Browns quarterback. What it means for Watson, he can finally put this uh, behind him. What it means for the Browns, they can finally start to look at him playing this year. And what it means for the NFL, it expedites their their time, their timeline to um, make a decision on his suspension. And I think it justifies them not suspending him for a full calendar season. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. NBA Finals wrap-up, NBA Draft Preview, and the Stanley Cup recap. And do I think the Lightning can extend this series past the fifth game? Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors at Anchor. Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 11 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. We're going to get to the NBA Draft and the Warriors winning their fourth title in eight years in a minute, but... I want to start with uh, two pieces of football news that I thought were pretty interesting. We'll start with the one that we talked about a little bit earlier has to pertain to Deshaun Watson. Um, Josina Anderson, who's a reporter, NFL reporter for CBS Sports, just tweeted, I'm told there have been recent attempts by the NFL, the NFL Players Association, and Deshaun Watson's advisors to negotiate a disciplined settlement. However, talks involving a potential number of games missed, quote-unquote, fell apart, not being on the same page. As of now, the process moves forward, per league sources. So what that means is the NFL, the NFL Players Association, and Deshaun Watson's camp are negotiating and trying to come up with a uh, settlement number for the number of games he's going to be suspended. So what that means, in my opinion, is We've heard reports that the NFL is trying to hit Watson with an unprecedented suspension. So in terms of number of games, I think that means the NFL is pushing for Watson to be suspended anywhere between, uh, we'll say, 12 and 17 games. Um, so they think that they're, they're trying to push for Watson to get suspended for 12 to 17 games, like I said. So that means Watson, the NFL Players Association, are negotiating to try and get that number down from that 12 to 17 range into that 4 to 10 range. It has also been reported that if the NFL comes out with an unprecedented year-long or two-year-long, whatever, an excessive 
unprecedented suspension against Watson that the NFL Players Association and Watson will take legal action against the league, not only appealing it, but taking the league to court and trying to unearth some of the stuff against uh, former uh, current, excuse me, Washington football, uh, Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder, Jerry Jones, some of the allegations there. Because the NFL is going to suspend Watson on the basis that he broke the NFL's code of conduct policy. Okay? But in this same code of conduct policy, it says that owners should be subject to stricter punishment than players which has not happened with Dan Snyder, which has not happened with Jerry Jones. So if Deshaun Watson gets suspended a year, what the NFL Players Association is saying, okay, we're going to take you to court and use that as an argument, and they better get suspended more than he is and get stricter punishment than he is, because that's what your code of conduct policy says, Roger Goodell. And with this report that the NFL Players Association and the NFL are negotiating a settlement on Deshaun Watson's punishment, that is a good sign for the Browns and Deshaun Watson. And what that means, it tells you a lot. And no, most notably, it tells you that the the, uh, the NFL and the league thinks that the NFLPA has a good case to fight this suspension. The biggest threat to the NFL is a lawsuit and a judge granting an injunction where Watson could end up playing week one. Things can get messy if they don't all find a common ground. The negotiated settlement on a Deshaun Watson suspension would bring closure for him and the NFL. There'd be no appeal and no lawsuit after. But the two sides might be far apart on a number of games. The NFL has leverage since under the dis- disciplinary policy, Goodell or someone he picks, here's an, ap- here's an appeal. But the NFL doesn't want a lawsuit. Like I said, it could lead to an injunction where Watson ends up playing week one. They're going to try and find common ground, and that's why I think they're going to agree on a number in that 4-10 to game range. As Jose Ramirez lines a single into right field, Jose Ramirez on first base in the top of the first for the Guardians, Oscar Gonzalez at the plate, and with that base hit, Jose Ramirez extends his 12-game hitting streak. The other piece of news I wanted to get to in football is in the college football world, and that is that is Arch Manning, the nephew of Eli Manning and Peyton Manning, has committed to play college football at the University of Texas. That's pretty significant. Um, Texas Longhorns, we know that they haven't been relevant since they had Vince Young Back in 2004, 2005, they haven't been relevant since then. Um, they've been one of the – they're obviously a classic uh, team in college football, but they get Arch Manning, the 2023 five-star quarterback. Football is in his blood. He's been watching NFL films since he, is, since he was in middle school. Eli Manning, Peyton Manning are his uncles. He comes from one of the best football families. And he goes to Texas. And what I think this means for Texas, it's a great recruitment of, for Texas. He's one of the most highly recruited, highly sought-after quarterback prospects in the last 20 years. So I think this should put Texas back in the map, on the map, in the conversation for national title contention. But I need to see it to believe it. 
but Arch Manning commits to play college football at Texas. As Oscar Gonzalez faces a 1-2 count from Smelter, and Gonzalez steps out for time. Gonzalez hit a home run and a two-RBI single last night, and he is really hitting the ball well in the major leagues in his 24 games. Smelter throws back to first, Ramirez is back. We're going to go ahead and announce the end of this top of the first before we get to the NBA. Smelter looks in for the sign. He has it. Smelter checks first. Ramirez has a healthy lead. The pitcher Gonzalez swinging a tapper towards third. Fielded by the Twins. Gloves throws. He is out at first. And we go to the bottom of the first. All tied at zero. As the Twins are coming back with Plezak on the mound for the Guardians. All right, let's get to the NBA. The Golden State Warriors win their fourth title in the Eight years as they beat the Boston Celtics 103 to 90 last Thursday night to win the NBA championship in six games. Steph Curry scored 34 points and was named the finals MVP as the Warriors claimed the franchise's seventh championship overall. This one completed a journey like no other for the Warriors dynasty after a run of five consecutive finals then a plummet to the bottom of the NBA, and now a return to greatness just two seasons after having the league's worst record for the Warriors. Curry said after the Warriors accepted the championship trophy, quote, we found a way to just get it done. And they did get it done. For Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and Andre Godala, it's a fourth championship. 2015, 2017, 2018, and 2022. Steve Kerr cements himself, cements his legacy as one of the best coaches in NBA history, winning his fourth title, his ninth title, if you count his five as a player. Steph Curry finally gets that elusive finals MVP. He now is widely regarded as one of the best point guards of all time. A lot of people are putting him in the, their top 10 players of all time. And what this title means, I think this title cements the Warriors' legacy as one of the greatest dynasties in NBA history. Steve Kerr and uh, Steph Curry are both, in their own right, one of the best coaches and one of the best players in NBA history. And I think it makes the Raptors' title in 2019 and the Cavs' title in 2016 that much more impressive. The Warriors went to five straight finals from 2015 to 2019. They were the worst team in basketball two years ago. They missed the playoffs two consecutive seasons. But they climbed the mountain, they got healthy, and they're back on top of the NBA world. And the Warriors win their eighth title in... their Not their eighth title, their fourth title in eight years. From the NBA championship to the NBA draft, which takes place tonight at 8 o'clock on ESPN. Uh, Let's talk about who we think should go number one. Um, There are a lot of exciting prospects in this year's draft. Taking a look, obviously, Paolo Benchero from Duke, Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, Jaden Ivey from Purdue, Jabari Smith from Auburn, There's a lot of talented players in this draft class. 
With that being said, who do I think is going to go number one tonight? I think the number one player in this draft and who is going to go number one is Paolo Banchero. I think Paolo Banchero is going to go number one in the in this year's draft. Uh, he's the best shot creator in this draft class, I think. He's 6'10", 250. He's got a real NBA-type frame. He's got tight ball handling ability, and he's got a bunch of good live dribbling passing. He's a load to handle as a downhill scoring threat. He's got a mid-range shot that's very good. He's strong enough to bully people in the post. I think he's the most the player in this draft class most likely to become a primary option on a contending team, which is why I think he's going to be the number one pick in this draft. Chet Holmgren, I think, has the highest ceiling in this draft and the highest upside in this draft. Uh. Obviously, a lot of people are calling Chet Holmgren a bust. Uh, he's got a famously skinny frame. Um, but it's it should be noted that Chet Holmgren's frame has never prevented him from dominating whatever competition he's faced. Holmgren has the physical tools, the feels, the touch, the finish, finishing ability, and the ferocious rim protection to make him the most tantalizing upside bet in this class. I think he is the player with the most upside in this draft. But the best player in this draft is Purdue's Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey has the best scoring ability in this draft class. He has the ability to get to the basket, and he has knockdown shooting. Um, he has the ability to constantly bend opposing defenders by getting to the rim. His burst with the ball in his hands is elite even by NBA standards. I think Jaden Ivey has the skills, has what it takes to be the best player. I think he's the best player in this draft. He is very skilled. He is... um. His physical tools and explosive speed uh, and his upside make him the best player in this draft. He's extremely fast and strong, puts a lot of pressure on defenses and transition. The NBA-style play for him will open things up in a big way. He can be an impactful defender when he wants to be, which is something that he can control. His three-point shooting returned to earth as the season went on this year, and he had his share of frustrating games. He still has to polish his passing his handling and decision-making, and develop a better left hand. Teams will make their own assessments about him, but his best moments are when he needs to use his ability to take over games in a manner that no other college player could. He's someone you think long, long and hard about drafting early. I think he'll be the best player in this draft. All right, so those are some of the players to watch in this draft. The number one pick, the player with the highest upside, and the best player in this draft. But who do I think the Cavaliers are going to take fifth overall in this draft? Well, let's see. They, here are the five players I think the Cavs could look at taking fifth overall in this draft. First, let's talk about what the Cavs don't need. The Cavs do not need a center. as They have Evan Mobley, Jared Allen locked up the center and power forward position for years to come. They don't need a point guard. They don't need point guard because they have perennial all-star Darius Garland. 
So that leaves a shooting guard and a small forward. And I think that what the type of player the Cavs should draft tonight at 14 is an athletic, playmaking, scoring wing that has a lot of upside offensively but can be an elite defender defensively. So here are the five players I think the Cavs can draft at 14. The first guy is A.J. Griffin from Duke. Um, he has the talent of, uh, of a top 10 pick. But the reason why I think he could be there at 14 for the Cavs is because he hasn't stayed healthy throughout his career. He was a one-and-done prospect playing 39 games for Duke, starting 25 of them. But he had a number of knee injuries and ankle injuries before he got to Duke. How teams view him medically will determine whether or not he's available at 14 for the Cavs. If he is, I think he's a gamble worth taking for the Cavs. Second guy I think the Cavs can take at 14 is Malachi Bronham. Bronham is another one-and-done prospect out of Ohio State. Um, it's more likely that Bronham is available when the Cavs pick. Uh, he doesn't, doesn't fill exactly the need of a wing that the Cavaliers have, although he might be the best player on the board depending on how things shake out before the Cavs pick. The Akron native shoots the ball really well from deep in his lone year with the Buckeyes, and he played defense at an impressive level that should translate to the NBA. So AJ Wing, AJ Griffin, excuse me, not AJ Wing, AJ Griffin and Malachi Branham are the first two. The third is Usman Diang, who is a wing for the New Zealand Breakers. Diang is a little bit like Griffin in the sense that it would be a bit of a surprise for him to be on the board at 14. But if Cleveland decides to trade up, Diang could be the target. And why I bring up trading up is because Adrian Wojnarowski, the fantastic NBA reporter uh, for ESPN, has tweeted that the Cavs have made a trade to acquire another pick. Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted 40 minutes ago, Cleveland is acquiring Sam Sacramento's pick at 49 in tonight's NBA draft for the rights to Sasha Vezinkov. Vezinkov was a first-team All-EuroLeague forward this season. The Cavaliers have four, four picks in tonight's draft now, 14, 39, 49, and 56. So the Cavs could be stacking draft picks to trade up in tonight's draft. And if they do, it is very, very possible that they could be trading up for a player like Usman Diang. Diang is one of the rawest talents available in this draft. He features an incredibly high upside. His size and athleticism give teams a reason to love him. But I wouldn't say he's an NBA-ready player right now. The other guy, I think, the other, the thir third, fourth player I think the Cavs could take at 14 tonight is Terry Eason, a forward from LSU. Eason has everything the Cavs are currently looking for from a need standpoint. He's a lengthy wing, good defender. Um, he shot the ball better than 37% from three. Big improvement from a 24% he shot while he was at the University of Cincinnati. In college, he was forced to play out of position. Spending more time on the wing as a 3 and D type player could be very beneficial to him in the NBA. The fourth player is Ochai Abaji. Abaji is a name that has been connected to the Cavaliers since the team missed the playoffs back in April. Um, he makes a ton of sense from a needs standpoint. 
The issue with taking him is that he's a prospect that's further developed than many guys at this point in the draft. While he has the makings of a solid NBA player, he may not improve a ton while in the league. He can be a rotational player, which is a win at number 14, but he may not be anything more than that. So those are the four players I could see the Cavs taking tonight. Ochai Abaji, Terry Eason, Usman Dieng, Malachi Branham, and A.J. Griffin. If you want a prediction out of me, I think the Cavs go with the hometown kid from Akron, Ohio, and take Ohio State Buckeye Malachi Branham at 14. Let's get to the NHL Stanley Cup Final, and the Avalanche have a commanding 3-1 series lead. The Avalanche win game one in overtime. They won game two, seven to nothing. The Lightning bounce back in game three as they win it six to two. But the Avalanche win last night, game four in overtime. Nazim Kadri scored at 12.02 of overtime. And the Avalanche beat Tampa Bay last night, three to two, as the Avalanche moved within one victory of dethroning the two-time defending champ Lightning. The Avalanche outscored the light, outshot the Lightning 11-3 in overtime. Game 5 is Friday night in Denver. Where the Avalanche won two of the first two games of this series and are 7-2 in the postseason. Do I think the Lightning can extend this series? Yes, they definitely can. Andre Valeski has been in the in these big moments before. This team has won back-to-back Stanley Cups. They had the championship experience. They have the championship pedigree required to push this series to the brink to six or seven games. With that being said, with guys like Kale McCarr, Nazim Kadri, Darcy Kemper, the Avalanche are playing at an extremely high level. I think the Avalanche closes out in five and win the Stanley Cup final on Friday night. One last check on the Guardians game before we call it a night for this episode. Franmil Reyes at the plate. We'll go ahead and announce this half inning for you guys. Reyes returned from the injured list on Tuesday night as he takes a ball inside. It's 2-0. Reyes hit a home run in the eighth inning to tie the game. If the Guardians can get him going... This team can go to another level offensively. Smeltzer looks in the 2-0 pitch to Reyes. Catches the outside corner, strike one, 2-1 pitch. Two guys the Guardians really need to get going if they want to capitalize on this success and continue to win these series as they've won seven straight series are Miles Straw and Franmil Reyes. The pitch to Reyes, swing and a miss on the slider. It's 2-2. Because when you look at across the board, you've been getting consistent contributions from Jose Ramirez, Josh Naylor. But if you can get Reyes and Straw going, this lineup will be lethal top to bottom. As Reyes swings and drives one to center, fairly deep. Buxton's under it. He makes the catch. And there's one out in the top of the second. That'll bring up Andres Jimenez. What can you say about Andres Jimenez? Andre Jimenez, I think, should be an all-star, starting second baseman potentially for the American League in the all-star game. He's hitting above 300. He has a lot of clutch RBIs. His numbers with runners in scoring position are fantastic, and he leads all American League second baseman and more. He steps in here with one out in the top of the second for the Cleveland Guardians. 
Smelter looks in. The wind and the pitch is in there at the top of the zone for a strike. 89 miles an hour on that pitch. A lot of day games going on right now across the league. And this one in Minnesota is one of them. Jimenez, 3.04 average on the year. Smelter looks in the pitch in there. Strike two, 75 mile an hour curve. And Jimenez is down 0-2. Jimenez, seven home runs, 33 runs batted in, 342 on base percentage this season. Smelter has him in a in account at 0-2 pitch, high fastball out of the zone, one and two. Jimenez is a guy who, whenever the Guardians need a spark, he is there. And he also plays outstanding defense, and that makes him in, invaluable to this team. The one-two pitch, did he go? No, he did not go. Two and two, says Angel Hernandez. Taking a look at Twitter for you guys. Just check out some of the headlines before we go our separate ways. Within the next three weeks is the expected timeline for Deshaun Watson uh, potential suspension. So that is what we've been saying. Um, Watson will know, the Browns will know, and the NFL will come out with their decision in the next three weeks, preferably by training camp. So that's another thing. Jimenez has run the count to three and two, and he grounds one to short. Correa is under it. He throws to first in time for out number two. That'll bring up Ernie Clement playing third today as Ramirez gets a day off in the field. Ramirez is DHing today for the Guardians. Taking a look at Twitter, another Deshaun Watson update. So what I was talking about earlier, um, Roger Goodell cannot hand down a punishment under the new collective bargaining agreement. The decision is made by the disciplinary officer. So Goodell would hear an appeal and could bump up a suspension, but it's not easy to change what someone of Judge Sue Robinson's stature decides. She's the disciplinary officer. So what that means is the suspension won't get bumped up it will probably get bumped down, if anything. And Ernie Clement swings and pop, pops one to first, and that'll end the inning as the Guardians take the field in the bottom of the second, Twins coming to bat. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Jote Sports Pod. That's at J-O-T Sports Pod. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Jack Bernie TV and at the Real J Burns. Um, and we will be back next week with another award-winning episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you guys have a great week. I've been Jack Bernie, signing off.